Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And this is Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. And in this episode, we're going to be exploring the question, how do you build a collaborative culture and how do you sustain it in a time of remote working? And we're going to be speaking to Kirsten Edwards-Warren, who's one of the leaders of Campus Lexicon, which is the world's largest economics consulting firm. So a senior partner of Alan and Overy, I must say I always took my responsibilities as cultural custodian extremely seriously. To me, it was an article of faith that our culture was one of our most precious assets and it was fundamental to our long-term success. For me, encouraging and enhancing a collaborative culture was a key part of my leadership role. I remember a, a partner we hired from another firm, actually it was a US firm, telling me how amazed he'd been when he arrived at our firm and circulated an email to partners asking if anyone had any insight into a particular legal problem he was trying to solve for a client. He was immediately swamped with answers, he told me. At my old firm, he said, no one would have answered that email. They'd all have been sitting there thinking, well, I do know the answer, but why would I share it with you? So to me, in an increasingly complex and specialist world, this ability for professionals to collaborate is absolutely key to serving clients effectively. Clients' problems just don't typically come wrapped up in a nice little box with a ribbon on. They tend to be a bit sprawling and a bit messy, and they cover lots of different issues. Being a brilliant soloist, I think, isn't enough these days. People have to work with others from different disciplines, different practice areas, different countries, and increasingly, I think, different professions to solve clients' most complex problems. Yes, and increasingly, people are coming to me and asking, you know, how can we encourage a more collaborative culture in our firm? And I want to discuss this issue with a particular client of mine, Compass Lexicon. They approached me at the start of 2020 for advice because they were experiencing very rapid growth and they were concerned that their culture might be hard to sustain as they continued to grow. They'd always been a strongly values-driven firm where collaboration was very highly prized and they wanted to make sure that it continued to be so as the firm grew very rapidly. So I'm not that familiar with Compass Lexicon and I'm presuming, Laura, that they're, they're a partnership with some kind of lockstep model because, you know, that's always been assumed to be the surest way of encouraging collaboration. I guess, you know, the way it's traditionally been thought of, at the very least with a lockstep, there's no disincentive to collaborating. In other words, there's no obvious financial advantage to encourage behaviour that's born of pure self-interest. Well, I'm not surprised that you think that, but actually they aren't a partnership. Uh, Compass Lexicon's part of a much larger corporation, and they operate essentially an eat-what-you-kill remuneration structure. So the experts, they're not called partners because they're not partners, the experts' remuneration is, is very, very closely linked to the work that they originate. But I found, as I got to know them better, I've come to understand that they really are one of the most collaborative cultures I've ever come across in a professional organisation, which, frankly, is pretty amazing in a firm full of economists. That sounds really, really interesting because... 
if they haven't got a lockstep system, I'm interested in exactly how they make collaboration work. I mean, this whole area of collaboration is really interesting at the moment because of all the discussion that's going on about the impact of remote working on organizational culture. And I know a lot of firms are managing to present quite a coherent front to their clients in the current crisis. But behind the scenes, I think a lot of people are really worried that it's not going to be sustainable in the long term, that the cracks are beginning to show. Yes, absolutely. Um, Shortly after I presented my findings and recommendations to Compass Lexicon, we all went into lockdown. So I want to find out how have they been managing to sustain this collaborative culture, their collaborative working practices, whilst they've all been working from their homes and scattered all across Europe. Kirsten, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I know how incredibly busy you are, so I really appreciate it. To start, maybe the name Compass Lexicon won't be familiar to all of our listeners. Can you just explain a little bit about you know, what the firm does and you know, how big it is and some basic things like that? Absolutely. My pleasure, Laura. Um, so Compass Lexicon globally, I believe, is the largest economic consulting group worldwide. In EMEA, which is the practice I'm the deputy head of, we are, we're just pushing 350 people. Uh, we're microeconomists by training, and we apply microeconomics to competition policy, to international arbitration, to energy issues. So we have a big energy economics practice. You said you were the largest. How big are you? We are, I think, about 900 people globally. And the reason I say I think is because we, we're growing so quickly, I can't keep track of the numbers. In Europe, about 350 people. Kirsten, that's how many professionals and how many partners? The ratio, I would guess, is about one to 10. We're not actually a partnership. We are um, a group of experts on on an expert model and an at-risk model, but it's not a partnership. It's actually, the group's actually owned by um, FTI Consulting. I am really interested in the idea of of getting economists to talk about culture, (laughs) because culture is often seen as a very soft and fuzzy concept. And you absolutely are are not a soft and fuzzy organisation. But one of the things that I was really impressed about when I started working with you was how important culture was within your organisation and really how phenomenally collaborative you actually were. So can you talk about how have you at Compass Lexington managed to achieve this collaborative culture in an environment that is, you know, is not a partnership? <laughs> you, you are right in that I would say at our heart, we are, you know, we're microeconomists who like thinking about difficult issues and chewing over data and, you know, quite technical people. I would say there's been quite a, a shift change in the past five years as to the extent we talk about the soft and fuzzy issues. And I think it took some people a little while to get comfortable about it. And now I would say we're almost at the other extreme where we talk about it a lot. You know, how we're so collaborative. I've been trying to pinpoint this uh, for for this conversation. I mean, part of it, I think, is the nature of our founder. We did start off being a business, uh, a European business at least, was one person who founded the business and built up a team around him. And for him, collaboration is extremely important. So he was looking for people he could basically co-author with. He's very good at developing people. And the business kind of grew organically quite slowly at first, 
And as additional people came in, they kind of bought into that culture. And of course, now we've expanded massively and and our founders not involved in the vast majority of recruitment decisions, but it's still something that we're looking for when we're hiring people. I think we're all, you know, we're all a bit guilty of hiring people in our own image, whether that's a good thing and sometimes not. But I think when it comes to the cultural aspects of collaboration, integrity and excellence, I think... You know, those things are things that are really important to us when we're hiring particularly lateral hires because we have started growing by hiring uh, hiring people laterally. Do you think, Kirsten, uh, many people say that in professional service firms that collaboration is driven by compensation? Um, but as I understand it, you have a merit-based system. Uh, <laughs> it's not so, driven by compensation in so that. So, so what, I mean, to what extent is your compensation system a driver of, of collaboration for your firm? Not at all. It's actually quite, quite the opposite in that we have a compensation system that's based entirely on our own clients and revenues. And despite that, we have amazing collaboration. I think there's a couple of reasons behind it. One is that most people who come into our industry don't do it to make money. Economists who want to make money go into investment banking. Kirsten, just to be clear, you you do make a lot of money. Well, I'm not saying it's a poorly paid industry, but I think the driver for people coming into the industry, particularly at the graduate level, they're economists and they want to carry on thinking about these interesting issues and they want to debate these issues with people, you know, chew over them, think about how they're applied. And actually, you know, most people we work with are really interested in policy and how what we're doing impacts on government decision making. So I would say that's the number one reason we're all trying to work together. Of course, I also think collaboration grows the size of the pie. You know, we are we give much better advice to our clients when we've got a number of brains in it together thinking about things. You know, thinking's kind of very non-linear in a sense. You put a load of clever people into a room and they spark off each other. You may come up with something amazing a single person spending the exact same amount of time as that group is is probably not going to come up with the same insights, no matter how intelligent they are. It's interesting, Kirsten, because that, I mean, intellectually, I think every professional person knows that, but that doesn't stop there being an awful lot of selfish people who don't collaborate in the way that you're describing. How tolerant is your system, your culture of people who don't play the game? So obviously we've had people who've joined us and don't feel the same way. And what tends to happen is those people don't collaborate and there's a lot of collaboration that goes on elsewhere. And over a period of time, you know, they tend to self-select themselves out of the business and go elsewhere because I think they they realize it's not working for them and they probably don't get the same opportunities. I do think our clients, you know, they very often come to us because they know, you know, if someone comes to me, they know I'm going to say, okay, I can do this bit of the project, but I need these three people because they've got all of this expertise and you're going to get the very best of what we've got. So I think, you know, there are business models where people can work as individuals and it does work. And, I, you know, in our industry, I've seen them be very successful. They haven't been very successful within our group. So starting to think about um, how you all have been working together during lockdown, as I understand it, um, you collaborate sort of naturally and very easily across multiple countries. How did that impact you initially when the rest of you were still able to move around freely? Everybody was asked to work from home with immediate effect. And actually the good thing about doing that at the same time is we managed to set up new systems and structures and ways of working together uh, that worked for everybody. And then over time, as 
you know, different lockdowns ended in different periods and different countries can do different things. People started going back into the office and and we were a bit more flexible about what could be done where and we still are now. But we have new ways of working that, you know, people in an office, for example, there might be four people in an office, but if they're working with four people in another office, we would still all get on a Teams call rather than have a meeting room with a subgroup and then people dialing in just because it works. So much of developing junior professionals is done through them just observing senior professionals at work. So how has that been progressing over the past few months? Yeah, that's a really good point, Laura. And particularly in our business, because junior people come in and do a lot of data work in packages like Stata or Python or R, and they actually need to be sitting with somebody who can show them how to use those packages and how to improve their work. So we do actually spend quite a lot of time, particularly at the junior levels, where juniors and managers will be sitting together developing the junior's skills. That is now taking place online. And actually what we've done is given people budgets to buy monitors because, you know, we tend to have multiple screens. And a lot of it we're having to do over the phone where we're screen sharing with people and going through, uh, you know, their codes and what they've done. We're trying to make sure that when we have team meetings with clients that juniors can sit in and listen to them, even if they're not billing the time, just so that they're seeing what's going on and that, you know, they're getting the learning from the case that they might, not otherwise get because they're not popping in and having these informal conversations. So, I mean, really what we've tried to do is think about what you get from all those informal conversations and try to make sure that we are in a more formal structure because we're remote working, making sure that the value is still there. So, uh, Kirsten, one of the things I'm interested in is what the what is the impact of this for the future? If we assume that there's a permanent shift in the way people are working and there's going to be more working from home and, and, and more interaction between human beings intermediated by machines, how do you uh, maintain this sense of collaboration and culture, the sense of belonging, being part of something bigger when everybody's sitting in their own house, in their own room and only ever connecting with people via a machine? Thanks. Good question. We've actually started trying to take it back to basics and think, well, actually, is our organizational structure fit for purpose if we have a huge change in the way that we work together? Because our structure, particularly in a management sense, has kind of grown organically as the firm grew and expanded. And now we're trying to just take a step back and say, hang on, our strategy might change entirely in in terms of what we want to achieve in the way that we're going to work together. So if we take a step back from all of that, what would a structure look like in terms of the way we manage people. Maybe we have people in smaller teams so that people are actually feeling like they're part of something because they can connect with a team of 20 people remotely every week. Whereas if they're just connecting to a team of 150, they might feel like they're not part of something so big. So I don't actually have the answer for you, but what I do know is we we do have to think about this at quite a high level before going into detail rather than just letting something organic happen because then we might end up with something that's not fit for purpose. To what extent do you see the risk people may kind of start to slowly sort of spin away from the firm because the firm as you've known it in the past as a place where people physically go to an office doesn't exist anymore? I don't see it as a huge risk. I actually see that there's more opportunity there. We've always been quite flexible because we work across multiple offices. A lot of our work has always been, you know, by phone, by video call. And we've never been 
Most people used to go into the office on a daily basis, but maybe worked from home once a week and it was pretty easy to do so. I think we can be more flexible going forward. And actually, we've already, I already had somebody a couple of weeks ago saying, actually, you know, I really want to move up north to be nearer my parents. Is that going to be a problem? If at any point we start working in the office again, I could come down to London, stay over one night and work two days a week in the office. Yeah, great. And someone else commented to me, they're staying out, you know, living in the middle of nowhere at the moment. And they said, this is like my dream to be able to work in economic consulting, but live in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And I never thought this was previously possible. So actually, I see more opportunity if we can be more flexible. You know, there will always be times where we have to get together in person to go to important meetings, to go to the European Commission, for example. Um, But I think the more flexibility with people we can give people, the more talent we can attract. And do you think when the pandemic is over that people will naturally gravitate back towards the office or, I mean, how's that going to play out? I think we'll get a mix. We actually did a survey, which about, I think, close to 70% of people in the organisation responded to, to try to get a sense of how people were feeling about remote working, what they wanted going forward. And of course, we got a complete range of answers. You know, there are people who really want to be in an office. They thrive from being around other people and they want to be in the office five days a week. There are other people who really like the kind of peace and quiet of being at home, but would like to go in and see people from time to time. So I think there's a there's extremes. And I think flexibility is key, really, giving people the opportunities while making sure they don't kind of, you know, drift off and never get seen again. But I don't think in our... Uh, group that's very likely I think that people thrive when they're in the right environment for them and that may be being around a lot of people and it may be being on their own and people are very different and I think the more opportunity we can give people and the more flexible we can be about the environment that they're working in you know the better for our staff the more people are going to thrive and and the more people we can attract. What do you see your role as a leader is in this context and also the role of your founder, Jorge. I mean, you talked about Jorge really as, as kind of embodying the culture of collaboration, but that's not quite the same as him actively managing the culture. So I'm just wondering how you and he fit together around this, this important leadership priority of taking care of the culture. Yeah, good question. Actually, I mean, part of it we learned a lot from you, Laura. Part of it, I think, is about the telling stories and talking about culture all the time. So I think we had a really strong culture when we were very small, and then we grew a bit, and I think it it became weaker in places, and that was at a time when we didn't really talk about it. And now we talk about it constantly. We talk about collaboration constantly. We talk about integrity constantly. We talk about excellence constantly. Um, And I think that is part of the way that we manage culture. We make sure that when people aren't behaving in those ways that we expect, them to behave that actually it's well known and that we're not happy about it and there are consequences for putting out papers for example of poor quality or of of dubious integrity Jorge and I are I would say quite yin and yang so we're quite different personalities and yet I think what we have in common is a very clear vision of what the firm should be a very clear vision of what the culture should be very clear principles upon which we take decisions so even though you know we may be taking different decisions and i you know take all the day to day decisions i would always know if something was not in line with those principles and out of line with that culture despite the fact that jorge might approach something in a you know in a completely different way to the way that i might approach it so I think actually we balance each other very well in that sense. He's very kind of 
the inspirational leader. He's, you know, he gave an all staff call a couple of weeks ago, and I think I had about 100 messages afterwards saying, wow, he's so amazing. You know, he's really inspiring. He's smart. He's, you know, he's on the ball. And I think I'm much more about the kind of day-to-day empathy, understanding, talking to people, making sure everybody's okay, making sure they understand how they fit in, what we expect from them, you know, what's going well, cheerleading people when they do things. I put out a blog post last Friday about integrity because a junior member of staff had just done something that just wowed me because I thought it took such courage to do what he did. I put out a blog post on it and said, integrity is really important. Look what this person who's done, who's very junior, they've completely inspired me. And that's, I think, how we kind of you know, in our very different ways, play together as leaders around culture. Again, coming back to this idea of being more remote and not having the same physical connection with people that you might have had in the past. How do you as a leader kind of draw your sense of energy, your sense of connection with people? You know, this idea of being, if you like, at the centre of a nervous system where you're not getting all the signals you would have got before. Yeah, it's it's interesting, actually, because I really miss that personally. I like walking around the office and getting the kind of sniff of what the temperature's like and how people are feeling about different things. And I miss that. And we have to do it online. We've done it through surveys. I do it through actually something that I'm not sure everyone likes, but I quite often just randomly pick up the phone to people. And someone pointed out that when I do that to junior people, I terrify them. <laughs> when I ring them and say, hi, how are you doing? How are you getting on? How's working from home? Okay. They think they're going to be fired. <laughs> <laughs> So I I have a lot of one-to-ones in my diary, just trying to check in, particularly with all the experts to see how they are. We've set up a kind of cascade system where everybody has a counsellor that they check in with once a week and any concerns are escalated. But I have to say, I, I was concerned, particularly a few months ago, where people were, you know, the lockdown was get it going on too long. Coronavirus wasn't going away like we had all hoped it would. And I was concerned that despite all of these systems in place, there would be people who were feeling dreadful and we weren't picking up on them because in an office, if somebody's having a bad time, somebody sees it and their peers will all look out for each other and say, you know what, that guy's been in the office working 24 hours a day. He's absolutely exhausted. Someone needs to do something about it. And in a remote world, we just don't have that visibility over people. So one thing we have done to try to address that, we actually had some mental health seminars, which were fantastic. They were run by a fantastic um, expert. And, you know, he was pointing out mental health is not just about the extremes. It's about how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, everybody has these periods of down and you need to be able to recognize when it's happening to you, recognize when it's happening to other people. And you need to talk about it and make it something that there's no stigma around talking about it. And we've been saying to everybody, if you feel like this, please come and tell us. There's no stigma around it. Actually, I even gave my own story about when I was having panic attacks some years ago and the fact that I was the last person to recognize it and everybody else could see it coming. And just trying to encourage people to be aware of how other people are feeling working remotely and just look out for signals in a different way to how they might do in the office. I'm thinking a lot of people who work in professional service firms in partnerships and so on would be listening to the uh, description of your business and think that's pretty stony ground for uh, a collaborative culture where you've got a corporate and you've got essentially an eat what you kill compensation system. Oh, and they're so, economists, remember? And they're economists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. And isn't it called the dismal science? 
So, so there's kind of a lot, a lot of people, I think, who work in partnerships that pride themselves on the collaborative culture might think that is pretty stony ground. What's the one thing you would pick on to say is most important for you and your business in maintaining that collaborative culture? So I actually think, you know, we've been talking a lot about the collaboration part of our culture, but there are other parts of our culture which I think you can't really extract from that. So I would say other cornerstones of our culture are around integrity and around excellence. And that's integrity in work product, but it's also integrity in the way we interact with one another as colleagues and the way we interact with our clients. And let me give you a good example. About a couple of months ago, somebody I was working with we were kicking off a project together. I'd sent an email and the next day he called me on the phone and he said, Kirsten, I just want to tell you something. Your email yesterday really, really annoyed me. And I've been thinking about it all night. And I said, oh, let me open the email. And I opened the email and I read it and I thought, oh my goodness, that's such an annoying email. So I said, I'm so sorry. That is a really annoying email. <laughs> what I should have said is X. And then we had a good laugh about it and we got on and we carried on collaborating with the project. And that to me is such a good example of integrity because what that person didn't do, they didn't go and complain to their colleagues. They didn't go and moan. They didn't stew about it and let it affect the project. They called me up and they told me and I said, sorry. And we got on and we collaborated. And I see that kind of, we hold each other up, you know. It was courageous for that person to call me, but he was also upholding my standards and saying, you know, this isn't good enough, Kirsten. You have to behave better than this. And I, uh, you have to up your game. And of course, I was like, yes, of course, I have to up my game. So I think integrity is really, really important because now I know that person, I trust them with my life because I know if I put a foot wrong, they're going to tell me about it. So I think the integrity part and the excellence part are really key. The excellence part key because I want to know the people I collaborate with have the same high standards that I have. You know, you can't just take one bit of the culture and pull it out. I think it all knits in together. Kirsten, as always, I find spending time with you and with Compass Lexicon really inspiring. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kirsten. It's energising as well. <laughs> thank you, Lauren David. <laughs> Well, that was great, Laura. What do you think? I mean, when Kirsten was talking about their culture, I really had to keep reminding myself this is not a conventional partnership. In fact, it's almost the opposite of that. It's a subsidiary of a big corporate with a eat-what-you-kill type remuneration structure, and, and it's got experts scattered all across Europe, if not the world. This is a firm that challenges all the orthodoxy. I'm still not sure that I completely understand how it works. It's one of the reasons I find them such a fascinating organisation. I mean, they really are a kind of intellectual puzzle to me. And what I've worked out is that they're really three core elements. You need to understand them all together to really get a sense of why they're collaborative. So first of all, it's something to do with the work they do and the success in their market. So their work is technically very complex and it requires people with highly specialised skills. So because they always have an abundance of work, the experts have to collaborate with each other in, in order to get the work done. They simply can't manage it on their own. So that's interesting. But I mean, the abundance of work and the fact that they can't do any of the work on their own is not unique to them. That's common in many professional firms. OK, so that's why you need the second element, which is the kind of eat what you kill uh, remuneration structure. It means that each time they do agree to collaborate, the experts have to negotiate a split of fees. So if you think of this in terms of game theory, and David, I know you've been reading quite a lot of game theory recently, 
The system is based on a series of infinitely repeated games under conditions of scarcity. So there's a strong incentive to negotiate fairly, because if you don't, you'll struggle to find someone to collaborate with next time that you actually win a project. And remember, they're economists. They're trained to model competition and collaboration in hyper-rational terms. But are they really that rational? Because I've seen lots of very, very rational people behave incredibly emotional when push comes to shove. I think there is something about economists. And my, my first degree was in economics. It, it frames the whole way you see the world. It's, it's a weird kind of underlying belief system that affects you. Even, um, even the most reasonable economists do tend to see things quite differently from normal people. And it's so, so it's fascinating to see a firm that where everyone is imbued with, with this way of framing problems of, of competition and collaboration. But I remember I said there were three elements to it. Um, the third element is this very strong cultural role modelling as carried out by the founder, Jorge, and by Kirsten, who we've just been speaking to. I've got a feeling that third one might be the most important here. And I, I was really struck by the story Kirsten told about the colleague who caught the junior colleague, I think, who called her out about writing an email that had upset him, that had come across as as rather abrasive. Uh, that's very rare in my experience for people to kind of self-censor when dealing with each other in this kind of uh, professional environment. Typically, I find that professional partnerships in particular, but groups of professionals like this who have to work together, they tend to avoid the more difficult conversations. And once you're in the most senior leadership positions, people often hesitate to tell you the truth about yourself, except the ones who are always moaning about you and you kind of learn to just filter them out. So I was really struck by that story and also her response to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. She and Jorge realised that healthy cultures don't just happen. And I think Kirsten engages with it sort of very, very consciously and deliberately, whereas Jorge, in a sense, role models it in a much more kind of intuitive way. But they both of them recognise that cultures need to be created and nurtured every day through a series of micro interactions. So as a leader, every time you do or say anything at all, you're sending a cultural message, whether you mean to or not. I completely agree with that. And the question is, how do you maintain a collaborative culture when working remotely? The simple answer is you need to have one in place before you started working remotely. Otherwise, you don't stand much of a chance. Yes. And firms which were unpleasant places to work in before the pandemic will be doubly lousy when everyone's working from home. Yes. And I, I was really struck when Kirsten said she decided to switch over to working from home across all their European offices at the same time before Europe as a whole went down into lockdown to prove to each other that they were all in it together. That was, I, I think, an important signal to the whole organisation. Yeah, that was a really symbolic act. I mean, at a time, remember, when people were feeling vulnerable and emotional, these kinds of acts can have a really special resonance because the whole uh, workforce are looking to their leaders for guidance, for security and for clarity. And if they see their leaders behaving authentically in a crisis, they're going to remember that long after the crisis has passed. And it becomes one of those cultural stories that people tell. So I think it's a good idea for leaders to ask themselves, you know, what are the stories that my colleagues will be telling about me and the firm long after this particular crisis has passed? It was interesting when we asked Kirsten about the future, about the impact of this experience of working from home uh, going forward. She'd obviously been thinking about that really carefully. But I think like everyone at the moment, 
didn't really have the answers to that yet, which I'm not I'm not sure anybody has. No, and this, this, the implications of this shift to working from home are so significant that we can't really get our heads around it. And firms like Compass Lexicon will only beginning to really understand the implications that they can now fish in a totally global talent pool. And staff can work pretty much wherever they choose, as long as they're able to bring people into the collaborative culture as the firm grows. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, since the global financial crisis, there's been a really profound change in where you work and when you work. Yeah, you mean how technology has led to work intensification, the blurring of home and work boundaries, that sort of stuff? Yes, but but also in a kind of, um, it's become, I would say, a bit more depersonalised, uh, the work. You know, I remember uh, when I was a, a transactional lawyer many years ago, uh, a lot of the thrill of the job was the kind of the theatre of the deal. You would go to a negotiation with 20 people in the room. There'd be a lot of kind of huffing and puffing um, and silverback behaviour uh, going on. And I loved all that, you know, and you had this really intense um, physical coming together to negotiate a deal. That's largely gone now. It's all done by conference call or Zoom call uh, or whatever. So we've ended up with this kind of slightly dehumanised deficiency. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just struggling with the mixed metaphor there. You're talking about the silverback gorillas and dehumanised. I, I, I think it's all my, my, my brain's not quite computing. But generally, I get what you're saying. Um, I think for the past 10 to 20 years, too many firms have been focused on how to sweat the assets. You know, and when you were leading in Alan Overy, that would have been an important secret of your profitability. The focus has been on increasing productivity while sustaining the same basic ways of working. And the firms recognise that AI has the potential to bring about fundamental change, but they're really struggling to imagine what that actually means in practice. So what's amazing about the pandemic is it's forced all of us to think the unthinkable in so many different aspects of our lives. And while that can sometimes, in fact, often be horrific, it can also be hugely liberating if we allow ourselves to imagine and to have confidence. And looking ahead, the pandemic has given professional firms a chance not simply to think about when and where they work, but to fundamentally rethink how they work. So I guess that's one we're going to have to leave for the next series. Thank you again to Kirsten Edwards-Warren for joining us today. That's all for today's episode, and in fact, for the current series. Well, that's sad, isn't it, Laura? I mean, I've really enjoyed this. It is sad, David, but I'm already looking forward to the next series. Absolutely. And for those of you who are listening, if you've missed any of the other episodes in this series of six, you can always go back and listen to them at your leisure. We've really had some great guests. Yeah, we've had people from McKinsey, from KPMG, from Alan Novery, from London Business School some really fascinating interviewees and some really great topics we've had an opportunity to discuss and explore together. But do you know what the highlight for me is, Laura? What, what David? It's the privilege and honour of working with you. Oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got any topics you'd like us to discuss in the next series you can drop us an email via the email address on the podcast page and finally please remember to subscribe rate and review leading professional people wherever you get your podcasts thank you for listening thank you